Hi, this is Paul, and this is Rough Draft for Sunday, where I run through the current version of my Sunday sermon. I did a Google zeitgeist search on Jesus and lambs, and this is what I come up with. Most of these pictures are very domesticated Jesus. He looks like the kind of Jesus you would find in a marketing campaign and the kind of sheep you would look for in a marketing campaign, nice and clean and fluffy and the kind you'd like to cuddle with. There's ethnically conscious Jesus pictures, Jesus of varying colors to match the demographic group that actually has a long tradition in the church. Jesus with dark hair, uh, white Jesus with dark hair, white Jesus with blonde hair, vaguely Middle Eastern Jesus that can pass for all sorts of other ethnicities as well. Sub-Saharan black Jesus with a black lamb. And uh, what's interesting that of all the ethnically conscious Jesus that I see, I don't, I very seldom see Asian Jesus, uh, at least especially North Asian Jesus with striking Asian features. So um, we'll see if that comes along as globalization continues. And then it's always sort of in, in, in tension with the sort of modern historical physical correlation Jesus, where we say, well, he should look somewhat Middle Eastern because that's the kind of picture we want. And if you think about the tension between these two things, you can begin to think about, well, how these images sort of play in our imaginary. A couple of the images, now these are just the first images in the search, which tells me that these are some of the most popular images, or at least these are the images that Google has curated for us for our consumption, is emotionally mirroring Jesus. Jesus for the narcissists and the emotionally demanding. We need Jesus to mirror back our emotional moments and mirror all of our values and political positions. And so you have nose-nuzzling Jesus. Now, in the pre-Christian pagan world, their ideas of gods were quite a bit different than our own. This is Tom, Tom Holland writing in his book, Dominion. The border between the heavenly and the earthly was widely held to be permeable. In Egypt, the oldest of monarchies, kings had been objects of worship for unfathomable eons. In Greece, stories were told of a hero god by the name of Hercules, a muscle-bound monster slayer who, after a lifetime of spectacular feats, had been swept up from the flames of his own pyre to join the immortals. Divinity, then, was for the greatest of the great, the victors, the heroes, the kings. Its measure was the power to torture one's enemies, not to suffer it oneself. To nail, them to, rocks of, to nail them to the rocks of a mountain, or to turn them into spiders, or to blind and to crucify them after conquering the world. Um, crucifixion and torture and losing was for the enemies of the gods. Gods were the victors. That a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, and grotesque. The ultimate offensive offensiveness, though, was to one particular people, Jesus' own. The Jews, unlike their rulers, did not believe that a man might become a god. They believed that there was only one almighty eternal deity, creator of heaven and earth. He was worshipped by them as the Most High God, the Lord of hosts, the master of all the earth. Empires were his, were his to order, mountains to melt like wax, that such a god of all gods might have a son, and that this son, suffering the fate of a slave, might have been tortured to death on a cross, were claims as stupefying as they were to most Jews repellent. 
no more shocking a reversal of their most devout of their most devoutly held assumptions could be possible um, could possibly have been imagined. Not merely blasphemy; it was madness. And this continues on when you see Islamic positions that well, Jesus, this great prophet of of God, didn't really die on a cross because God would never let such a great prophet suffer. If you read what Jesus has to say about how the prophets died and suffered, well. Jesus seems to disagree. Only centuries after the death of Jesus, by which time, astonishingly, even the Caesars had been brought to acknowledge him as Christ, did his execution at last, um, at last start to emerge as an acceptable theme for artists. In other words, right now, the easiest way to spot a church is with a cross or a crucifix or, or some other emblem about Jesus' crucifixion. It wasn't for about it wasn't for about 400 years that you would actually begin to see this among Christians. So abhorrent and repellent was the idea of the cross. By AD 400, the cross was ceasingly to be viewed as something shameful. Banned as a punishment decades earlier by Constantine, the first Christian emperor, crucifixion had come to serve the Roman people as an emblem of triumph over sin and death. An artist carving the scene out of ivory might represent Jesus in a skimpy loincloth of an athlete, no less muscled than any of the ancient gods. Hercules on a cross. Now some of you might say, well, I get my Jesus from the Bible. And I'd say, good, that's exactly where you should get him from. Let's take a look at the beginning of the book of Revelation. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I saw, I turned... Um, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing fire. Don't want to get that lamb too close to that nose. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys to death and Hades. That's Jesus. That's a picture of Jesus. We didn't find that one in the Google zeitgeist search. Now, we're going to continue in the book of Revelation. Is this part of your image of Jesus? I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Does that figure into your Google zeitgeist search? 
Now, some might say, well, that's from the book of Revelation. We can't really, we can't really read that book. That's different. The book of Revelation is basically an updating of the Old Testament apocalyptic passages and a lot of the prophetic passages and the book of Exodus, now with the revelation of Jesus. Now, we've noticed that Jesus is roaring through Mark, and some people in the comment section have said, you're roaring through the, <laughs> through the book of Mark at such a pace. Well, we kind of are. People don't want, know what to make of Jesus. Is he troubled? Is he demon-possessed? He, is, he, is he a Messiah? They probably didn't think about sheep the way we think about sheep either, but um, don't, don't let him near soft, cuddly things because who knows what he'll do. He teaches them in parables. He's on the chaotic sea in a boat, and the people are on shore, and on one hand, they don't know what to do with him, but on the other hand, they can't seem to get enough of him. They wonder in amazement. After he had taught them parables, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let's, uh, let us go to the other side. So when evening came, they're going to cross the sea at night. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also there were other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. This is an astounding picture. And like what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, there's all these tiny little details that, that seem to reflect someone who was there, someone who watched, and... As with all people, you sort of remember idiosyncratic things. So there are other boats with them, and then this, this squall comes up. And, and how on earth could you sleep through a storm in a little boat? The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? They want emotionally ready and available Jesus. Jesus, don't you care about us? We're your disciples. Don't you love us? We're going to drown here and you're sleeping in the boat. He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, this makes the point that I've made often that miracles don't seem to do what we think they do. They've seen Jesus heal the sick. They've seen Jesus drive out demons. They've seen Jesus do amazing things. But when it comes to a storm, that just seems too much above him. And Jesus basically says, have you not been paying any attention? Do you really have no idea who I am? Now, what's interesting is that the story doesn't go, they were in the boat and they were terrified by the storm. Well, they were terrified by the storm. But what seems to be absolutely more terrifying is that he silences the storm. Well, why did you wake him up? Why? What did you expect him to do? See, you don't think these things through. Because more terrifying than a storm is one who can stand up and still a storm. That's absolutely unthinkable. They were terrified and they asked each other. They don't dare talk to him. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. When they got across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Jesus seems to be drawing these people. 
This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Think about that. For he had often, for he had been chained hand and foot, but they tore the, he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. This is like superhero stuff, but this is like super villain stuff. This is terrifying. The towns didn't know what to do with him. And again, when, when people say, well, he's, he's possessed by a demon and it's like, well, this is demon possession and you've chained him up and put him outside of, you haven't killed him. You're just terrified of him, but he's your, he's from your town. You're so what to do? So they try to chain him, and even the chains he breaks. And he tears off his clothes, and he lives naked, and everybody just tries to avoid. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with rocks. I remember in the Dominican Republic, living not too far from some friends of ours, we didn't know exactly which house it was or where he was, but we'd call him the screamy guy. Apparently, he had some kind of issue, and uh, the family didn't know what to do with him. They probably figured that turning him over to the really bad public health system would have been even more torture. So basically what they did was they locked him in a room all the time. And in that room, he just screamed. This guy they couldn't contain. And he's just haunting out in the wilderness, naked, yelling in terror, pain, agony all the time. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell at his feet in front of him. You almost get the sense that some part in these people were drawn to Jesus hoping that maybe they could be delivered while the demon themselves was trying to get them to go away. And you just see this, this fight within them back and forth. Do I come near Jesus and get released? Or do I run away from Jesus and continue to torment the man? And so inside the person, they're going back and forth. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of that area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. The demons, this shows that it was not a Jewish community, the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go unto them. Unclean spirit, unclean animal. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, it's a massive herd, rushed down the steep banks into the lake and were drowned. They seemingly do to the pigs what they did to the man. Torture, disheveled, unproductive ghastly. But these pigs had owners. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and countryside and the people, probably pigs from all over the village. The people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by legion of demons sitting there dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Notice the pattern. They used to be terrified of the man. The disciples were terrified of the storm. Now when they realize that someone has come into their midst that has this kind of power, 
Quite sanely, they're more terrified of him. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. This is something that seemingly gets missed again and again, even by Christians who read the Bible faithfully. Jesus is terrifying. There's a reason, there's a reason they killed him. Nobody knows what to do with him. He's deeply unsettling on one hand. But also he's deeply attractive and deeply loved. And, and, and how can you put these ideas together? But if you don't have this idea about Jesus, you won't understand him. And Jesus is gracious. He doesn't stay large and in charge here, I'm going to bother you. He gets into the boat. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. So on one hand, well, he was delivered, he was free, he has nothing but gratitude and love for Jesus, and he just wants to be with Jesus. And we'll see this pattern again and again. Others who had been demon-possessed, just Jesus, Mary Magdalene, don't let them, I don't want to be anywhere but with you, Jesus. And it, I guess, would have been kind and nice for Jesus said, come and live with us, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus did not let him go, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the, Deca in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. So a very early apostle to the Gentiles. Now the, the, the Decapolis was a city of of 10 Gentile cities, populations. In the third century BC, Greek Hellenists migrated to Palestine and its environs, and they established new cities for settlement and reestablishing old cities in which they became the dominant power. So these were Gentile places. That's why they had the pigs. They're often in struggle with the Jews who wanted well, their land back, and you know, they wanted God, there's God's chosen people, they wanted God's holy land. And so they would fight against them sometimes, but then when the Romans got in charge, the Romans basically said, we'll lump you guys up with Syria so you're not under any, any Jewish control and, and they won't bother you. You can just imagine the cultural tension there. What does all of this say? All of these pictures about Jesus that seem so discordant. Tim Keller wrote about it in his book, Making Sense of God, An Invitation to the Skeptical. Particularly impressive to readers over the centuries has been what one writer has called an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus. That is, in him, we see qualities and virtues we would ordinarily consider incompatible with the same person. We would never think they could be combined, but because they are, they are strikingly beautiful. And this is what's amazing. He can still a storm. He can, he can drive the demons out of this man that a whole community couldn't. And on one hand, we're terrified, we're in awe, and we're also in love. Jesus combines high majesty with greatest humility. He joins the strongest commitment to justice with astonishing mercy and grace. And he reveals a transcendent self-sufficiency and yet entire trust in and reliance upon his heavenly Father. We are surprised to see tenderness without any weakness. 
boldness without harshness, humility without uncertainty, indeed accompanied by a towering confidence, strength, and kindness. Readers can discover for themselves his unbending convictions, but com but complete approachability, his insistence on truth, but always bathed in love, his power without insensitivity, integrity without rigidity, passion without prejudice. And you have to add to this, this astounding power that made Greek gods look like wimps. All in a man, a historical man, who walked the earth and would be killed by the Romans. Now we keep wanting to domesticate Jesus, and as we do it, we just sort of make him more dim. We make him more like us. We make him less wild. We make him, well, into something of an idol that we want to manipulate. But all of these elements are of a piece. The terrifying Lord of heaven and earth who with a word could dispel or summons creation... Don't you care for us? The disciples plead. Well, more than you realize. Who is this that even the wind and the, bay, the, and the wind obeys him? And then we see him on the cross. And he's being mocked by just people hanging around with nothing better to do. He saved others. He can't save himself. Well, maybe he's saving others by not saving himself. How can we apply this? We have to integrate this picture of Jesus in terms of how we see him. Tim Keller, in another book, Walking uh, with God Through Pain and Suffering, gives this illustration. British shepherds often take sheep and rams one by one. Now, when I was in the UK this last summer, I took a train from Edinburgh down to Oxford. There are a lot of sheep in the UK. I passed farm and farm, sheep, 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 sheep. It's a lot of sheep. British shepherds often take sheep and rams one by one and throw them into a dipping trough, a huge vat filled with antiseptic liquid. The shepherd must completely submerge each animal holding its ears, eyes, and nose under the surface. It's of course horrifyingly frightening to the sheep. And if any of the sheep tries to climb out of the trough too soon, the sheepdogs bark and snap and force them back in. But as terrifying experience as this is for the sheep, without the periodic treatment, they would become the victims of parasites and disease. It is for their own good. One Christian writer witnessing this process couldn't help but remember that Jesus is called our good shepherd and we his sheep. We don't see any pictures of Jesus doing this to any of the little lambs in Google. The person who told this story then wrote, I've had some experiences in my life which made me feel, I should probably look this up, I believe it's Elizabeth Elliot. I'm going to check that, put that in, so then I'll know. Yeah, it's Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot wrote, I've had some experiences in my life which made me feel very sympathetic to those poor rams. I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from the shepherd I trusted, and he didn't give me a hint of explanation. As I watched the struggling sheep, I thought, if only there was some way to explain, 
but such knowledge is too wonderful for them. It is high, they cannot attain to it. And that's us. And so then we're confronted with this shepherd. I think our picture should include all the pieces. And it should very much include he who stills the storm, he who frees the demon-possessed man, and then sends him back to his own people instead of being exactly where he wanted to be in Jesus' inner circle. Amen.